This is They Create Worlds, Episode 10, The History of Mediagenic, Part 2. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This is part two of Mediagenic. We left off where Bruce Davis entered the scene, right, Alex? That's right, Jeff. Jim Levy, who had been the founding CEO of the company and guided the company to great success in the early video game era, only to see the company suffer through 16 quarters of consecutive losses once the crash took hold, was finally forced out by his board after so many years of losses, and Bruce Davis was put in to replace him. Now, this is probably the most controversial period in Activision's history, and that's saying a lot considering how some people view Bobby Kotick today as a CEO, but I think certainly the Bruce Davis era was even more controversial in its own way. We talked about this a little bit in one of the, our very first episodes about my interview subjects, mm-hmm. about how Bruce Davis is one of the most maligned individuals in the entire annals of video game history in terms of how he has been portrayed in the media, in history books, etc. He's been really vilified. He has been really vilified. Bruce Davis was a lawyer. He started at Imagic, which we talked about briefly. Right. He was brought into Imagic by the venture capitalists in the firm. And when Imagic tanked and the Imagic board asked for the resignation of its founding CEO, mm-hmm. Bill Grubb, they brought in Bruce Davis to run the company right. in 1983. The company didn't make it under Bruce Davis, which was probably not Bruce Davis's fault. Now, there's there's some things I'm this is not let's completely rehabilitate Bruce Davis. We're going to talk about some Bruce Davis problems in regards to Activision. But in regards to a magic, I don't think it was really his fault because they were left in a worse situation than Activision because they weren't as quite as successful a company. They were successful, but they weren't quite as successful and they failed to go public. They had no cash reserves to fall back on. So they didn't have something that they could lean on so allowing a CEO to rebuild them. The difference with Hackovich is he's coming in here. He has a lot of money that he can work with in order to rebuild it, especially since they were hemorrhaging money, but they weren't hemorrhaging at a rate that would tank the company fast enough. Exactly. And so Imagic did try to transition into home computers in the last day of Bill Grubb's tenure, but they really didn't have the capability to do it. And so Bruce Davis was in control of the company until it finally went belly up in 1985. But most of that time was basically just about how do we liquidate our inventory in a manner that gets us as high a return as we possibly can. There was really no hope to rebuild the company. It was only about how much can we cushion the The blow, the fall. Exactly. We want to make sure that we get 75 cents on the dollar as opposed to 50 cents on the dollar. Right. Something like that. And that's really all there was to do. I mean, you can't really say Bruce Davis should have tried to do more with a magic because there was nothing else to do with magic. They did not have cash. 
The difference between Imagic and Activision is Activision had cash. They had that public trading. Exactly. And Imagic did not. So company is wrapped up in 1985. The venture capitalists, some of the same venture capitalists invested in Magic are also invested in Activision. So then the same venture capitalists who valued Bruce Davis, they they liked him. They thought he was doing a good job. They understood that he was in a pretty hopeless situation and didn't they he managed to get as much money as he could out of the company before it died. Yes. They then bring him into Activision as a vice president of corporate development, vice president of business development. And he's in that role for a bit until they decide to to fire Levy. Now, it's very interesting. I have no idea whether Bruce Davis was an opportunist or not. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Both Bill Grubb, because I've also interviewed Bill Grubb, Mm -hmm. both Bill Grubb and Jim Levy have stated that they feel that Bruce Davis stabbed them in the back. Oh, really? That Bruce Davis was instrumental in some way in their being replaced. Probably working people in the background going, hey, we need to get some changes around here. It's possible that happened. It's possible that that didn't happen because it could just be from their perspective, board fired me, replaced me with this guy. The natural inclination is that this guy was in on it. Especially if he was already there in a high-up role anyway. And especially since he was brought in by the venture capitalists in both cases. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was actually an opportunist that was doing the backstabbing. It could be. I mean, in both cases, the company was doing very poorly. And there was probably going to have to be a change made. Or at least in the mind of the board, there had to be a change made. And certainly you want to have someone who's already at least somewhat familiar with the company taking over as opposed to bringing in someone completely different who had to pretty much stop operations in order to learn how the company even works before they try to fix things. Yes, we're looking at you, Atari, which had that very situation when they fired Ray Kassar in 1983 and brought in a new CEO who basically gave away Christmas in 1983, as we talked about previously, because he had to get up to speed. So and in the case of Activision, they were very patient. They gave Jim Levy 16 quarters to turn the company around. And that's pretty generous. That's, what, four years? Four years. It's not necessarily the case that Bruce Davis was an opportunist. But it is interesting that both Bill Grubb and Jim Levy saw him as such. Yeah, it's interesting that you have two sources saying the same thing who are pretty much divorced from each other. Exactly. So, leave that out there. I... Don't have a strong opinion on that, but just leave that out there. Bruce Davis is a lawyer, as I said, so he's not a marketer. Mm -hmm. He's not a product guy. He's not a product development guy. He's not a creative guy. This means that he's not really going to have a lot of allies within the company. You know, company is sales, marketing, and product development. Those are the three major roles of a video game publisher sales marketing and product development makes sense and he doesn't come from any of those disciplines so you're having someone who's completely different coming in right so i'm sure that that's going to put things off on the wrong foot even from the beginning you got someone who's just legal he's a lawyer why should he be in charge of a video game industry or a video game company and if he doesn't have any experience in it and he's a lawyer that's been brought in by the venture capitalists so, you know, that that kind of puts him in a bad situation. I think, you know, to spoil the ending a little bit, I think he has been somewhat unfairly maligned. Now, that isn't to say that mistakes were not made during his tenure, but 
I don't think he's to blame for quite as much of the problem as people try to claim he was. And he did some things that were very smart with the company as well. He wasn't just bumbling from one mess to another. And I have talked to Bruce Davis. We mentioned that in the interview episode. I may very well be the only historian that's ever talked to Bruce Davis. Mm -hmm. I'm not not sure anyone else ever has. Could be wrong, but to my knowledge, nobody else has. At least at the time of the interview with him. Or even today. I mean, I haven't seen anything where quotes from him or anything has been included. So I think I'm probably still the only one that's talked to him. So that gives me a different perspective. Uh, I'd like to think it doesn't make me biased in his favor, but I am am a little sympathetic to him, which I think is valid. I'd say you'd be more unbiased because you're getting his story as well as these other people's stories and you're able to reconcile the two stories. And I would argue that the people who vilify him are, especially if they write about it, and they never talk to him are the ones who would be biased because they never talk to him. Exactly. So a few things happened. He basically, he alienated a lot of creative people. And the creative people get interviewed more often than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And the creative people that he alienated have had nothing but bad things to say about him. And that's a lot of what shaped the idea of who he is. Mm-hmm. And there are two basic areas where this occurred. One is Infocom. So Jim Levy had this big grand plan for Infocom. Bruce Davis did not try to execute anything like that. Infocom was basically left to live or die on its own. Mm -hmm. The company was already dying. So since the company was left to its own devices, the only thing for it to do was to die. And he made some changes to integrate the companies, but not integrating the product development. They changed the packaging. They had them use Infocom or they had them use Activision's Packager and stuff like that. They discontinued some of the older games in the back catalog. These are all things that made it a little more difficult for Infocom to function. The new Packager was actually more expensive for Infocom than the old one. Mm -hmm. Discontinuing a lot of the back catalog was bad for them because unlike most games in most genres, Infocom text adventures would keep selling in small quantities year after year after year. We're not talking about blockbuster numbers year after year after year. But at least there was a trickle of income coming in. Exactly. From some of the popular ones like Zork or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So that cut off a little bit of their sales. And there was really a sense in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they were based, that Bruce Davis was setting them up to fail. That's how they felt. Mm-hmm. And that's how they've always depicted him. He is the great villain in the Infocom story. There are two villains in the Infocom story. He's one. The other is Al Veza, who was the guy that got them into Cornerstone, the product that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. They don't hate Al Veza to the same degree that they hate Bruce Davis. They hate, 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 hate Bruce Davis. Like flames on the side of their face, burning hatred. Of Bruce Davis. You cannot overemphasize this. Three underlining, bold text, bleeding dagger, hate. And you can understand where some of this is coming from because they do feel that Bruce Davis essentially set them up to fail. I don't think that's what Bruce Davis did. I do think what Bruce Davis did is basically, like I said, decree that this is a company that is going to live or die under its own power because... We're no longer going to support it. Well, I mean, they offered support, but I mean, they weren't going to give it extra... Help, basically, do your own products and we'll put them out and 
we'll be your distributor, but we're no longer letting you uh, effectively suck all on our uh, finances. Right. I mean, they're still a subsidiary company, so, I mean, they're still integrated, but it's not so much they set them up to fail, it's that you're going to have to figure your own way out of this mess. And pull your own weight. And pull your own weight. And Infocom at this point was just a company that couldn't do that. That seems to me like a perfectly reasonable thing for a businessman to do. I mean, obviously, it's not good for the Infocom people. I can totally understand why they're upset about that. Right. It does make some business sense. I've talked to other people that were at Activision, too. And Jim Levy aside, there isn't anyone that I've talked to that thought that that Infocom purchase was a good idea. Mm -hmm. Purchasing Infocom was a terrible idea for the company. Maybe if Jim Levy could have pulled off this brilliant meeting of the minds thing that he had envisioned, I mean, that maybe could have been something special. But in reality, the way the company was, the way things were, that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very bad mistake. And there were mistakes made with Infocom even before Bruce Davis took over. Because even under Jim Levy, Levy pushed them to release more games per mm -hmm. year. And that completely messed up the Infocom creative process. They had to bring in a lot more people. They had to throw a lot more concepts out. Some of these concepts weren't as successful or well thought out. Sales of their games took hit across the board. And especially if you have to rush a game. Mm -hmm. And they did. They're not going to be complete. They're going to have bugs. They're going to have problems. And that was in the Levy era. That was mandated in the Levy era. That wasn't Davis that did that. So Davis wasn't the only one at Activision that did things that hurt Activision. Jim mm -hmm. Levy did some stuff that ended up, well-intentioned stuff that ended up hurting Activision too. So, or that ended up hurting Infocom too. Right. So Activision does fail in this period. It completely goes belly up. They close the uh, subsidiary. They offer a lot of them jobs back at the main Activision headquarters, but none of them want it. These were all Boston people. I mean, not they weren't all born in Boston, but they were all they were MIT graduates. The core founding members of Infocom were MIT graduates that had all gone to MIT together as students and then created a company after they got out of school. So they were East Coasters. They didn't want to go to Mountain View, California. So that's one group of people that vilifies Bruce Davis. And while they have some very valid points... Infocom was its own whole mess. It's mm -hmm. not fair to pin too much of Infocom's mess on Bruce Davis because it was already a mess. It was already failing and it shouldn't have been bought in the first place. Exactly. So I sympathize, but it's a tricky situation. It, it's hard. There's no right answer in that kind of thing. The other person that has vilified Bruce Davis on multiple occasions is David Crane. David Crane was the last founder of Activision still with the company. Mm-hmm. Larry Kaplan left in 1982. He briefly went to uh, do a couple things on his own and actually returned to Atari after that. Mm -hmm. Alan Miller and Bob Whitehead were not entirely happy with Jim Levy's running of Activision and left in 1984 to form their own company. And that company was Accolade. Okay. Well known for the hardball and test drive and Jack Nicholas golf games. David Crane was very loyal to Jim Levy. Mm -hmm. As Jim Levy told it to me, when Alan and Bob announced that they were leaving, they were forming Accolade, the very next, I think it was the very next day, David Crane called up Jim Levy and said, I'm not going anywhere. You've got you know, me. You've got me. He was very loyal. And David Crane was a very talented designer. He really didn't do much of note after the 8-bit period was over. He kept working. It's just not much that he did after that was of note. 
But he was a very good designer and came up with some very good and important games, including Pitfall, mm-hmm. which was a massive hit on the VCS, the 2600, and was one of the first true platforming games on a console. And he did the Ghostbusters game that I talked about briefly, which was a very big hit. And he did a couple of other things. He was a very talented designer, very artistic. Jim Levy called him the artist of the group. And I'm not just talking about being good with art, though he was better at doing some of the pixel art and stuff than some of the others was. He was a very creative soul. He really knew how to take a vision and make it happen. And so this idea of Activision as the avant-garde creative company was an idea that very much appealed to David Crane, I think. I've not personally spoken to David Crane, but... I get the sense from what others have said and from other interviews that he's given that this idea of Activision as as an artistic company is probably something that meant a lot to him. Mm -hmm. Bruce Davis did very much change the company to be more commercial. The important thing was to make money. And a lot of that bleeding edge artistry stuff in games like Little Computer People, Alter Ego, Portal, that kind of stuff was not going to be done under Bruce Davis's Activision. And so mm. now you get into that big tension that we discussed before that's going to be one of the theses of my book about creative and business and how they are always in conflict and how much is too much creative, how much is too much business, where is that happy medium? And this is one of those cases where it comes up again. Bruce Davis really is a business guy. He really knows that this place needs to make money if we have any chance of making it work for creative to do things. Exactly. And so there is very much a shift towards what I've heard some people that worked at the company call a singles and doubles strategy to product. Mm -hmm. The baseball metaphor here being that Rather than getting the big hit, the home run, the product that sells hundreds of thousands or millions of copies, Mm -hmm. we're going to get the singles and the doubles. It's still a hit. You're still on base safely. It still gives the next guy that comes up a chance to bring you home. But we're going to do what's going to work and make sure we have a constant, consistent cash flow. We don't need to hit out of the park every single time and live or die by that because that's hard. I mean, if you look at any baseball game, if anyone tries to just go for home runs all the time, they're not going to make it as a team. They're going to fail because more often than not, they're not going to hit it out of the park. It's great when they do, but if you hit it so that you get those bases and you score consistently, you're going to win if you have a constant going on of every inning of two points as opposed to knocking out of the park and getting three grand slams. Exactly. So Activision is not going to create cutting-edge product anymore, and they're not even going to create cutting-edge, more commercial product. They are not going to be the company that creates the innovative new game that takes the market by storm and sells a boatload of copies, like in modern parlance, like a Grand Theft Auto. They're going to not be, as originally intended, a market leader. Exactly. They're not going to be a creative market leader. And obviously, under Jim Levy, they were never successful in merging sales and artistry. Hmm. Theoretically, they could have done that. Electronic Arts is a company that did manage to marry sales and artistry. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying here is we're not even going to try to marry sales and artistry anymore. 
we're going to make sure that we have a lot of just good enough products that hit their targets. And that, make the money. That make the money. Some people enjoy them. Some people get some happiness out of this. We get some money out of this. We get paid. Company survive. Mm -hmm. This is not something that sat well with David Crane. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there was a salary dispute because Activision is still trying to survive and save money, cut overhead, right. reduce overhead and all of that stuff. They're still hemorrhaging at this point. David Crane is at this point the highest paid creative in the company. He's one of the founders. He's been around. He's had some hits. Both sides agree that there was a money dispute. When David Crane criticizes Bruce Davis, he almost always talks about this artistry thing. He tries to make it about the artistry. It's a little bit disingenuous because there was also a salary dispute. There is at least one interview where David Crane admitted that there was a salary dispute. I mean, mm. I say admitted. He's not trying to hide it. Right. I, I shouldn't say up. admitted. It's just he actually stated it in it, at it least one up. interview. Yeah. There was a salary dispute. So it's a little bit disingenuous to just talk about, well, games became commodities and I wasn't comfortable working at a company where games were just treated as mere commodities, so I left. Well, I believe that he genuinely did not like that approach because David Crane as artist is something that has been discussed. Mm -hmm. It's very true. However, the fact is there was a money thing. <laughs> Follow the money, right? So David Crane's very highly paid. And according to Bruce Davis, now I've only heard Bruce Davis' side of this particular story. Right. David Crane has said in one interview that there was a salary dispute, but no more detail than that. Right. You don't have anything past that point. Bruce Davis says that basically he went to David Crane and said, well, who knows exactly what he said. But the, the gist of it is, we need to cut your salary. What we would like to do is offer you an incentive-based program, which if you create games that do really well could end up giving you more money than your current salary. So there, there was Almost theoretically, like yeah, not, not, I mean, he'd still have a base salary, but it's a base right. salary with bonuses. Right. It's almost like a commission. So you got a certain base level. We're going to cut you down from where you're at to this lower level. And if you happen to do make good games for us and you're the principal person in making that game, we're going to give you a certain percentage of that game's profits. Right. I mean, I don't think it was offered as a percentage deal. It's just that if your games do well, you have a chance for bonuses and incentives. You know, right. it's not a strict commission basis. But right, the idea is we're going to cut your base salary, but maybe you can make as much or more. And I don't know what these exact terms were. I mean, obviously, Bruce Davis doesn't know the exact terms 30 years later. Right. It's possible that in order to actually meet or exceed his current salary, they set him sales targets that were so impossible that he was never going to do it. Right. What I mean is, even though it theoretically offered the money, maybe in reality it never would. Maybe it really was a pay cut across the board. Or maybe he just didn't like the idea of his salary being cut at all. Maybe he considered that in the front. Maybe he considered that he had added a lot of value to the company, which he had, and that he was, and he was, and he was a founder of the company and that he's not going to be treated this way. And, you know, I could perfectly justify being offended in that situation. I mean, that's that's a tricky situation, you know. And so David Crane did leave the company in the salary dispute. Mm -hmm. I think it was probably a bad thing to alienate some of the creative talent. I would say that that is a mistake that Bruce Davis made. Bruce Davis was very bottom line focused. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of justification for what he did. The company needed to return to a model where they were making games that would actually sell. Mm -hmm. 
because the games just were not selling under Levy. A lot of them, some of them were, but a lot of them right, were not. You, you're still got 16 bad quarters. We need to turn this around. So the Davis approach was absolutely necessary in general principle. He probably took it too far. He probably couldn't see the forest for the trees a little bit and was so focused on the profitability that he lost some of what made Activision special. He lost some of the talent. He lost some of the innovation. That pendulum, that always intention between artistry and business, probably swung too far to the business side. I think that that is a perfectly valid criticism to make of Bruce Davis. Okay. That's different from what his detractors say. His detractors basically just say that he had no idea what he was doing, that he ran the company into the ground that he was perfectly happy to let the company fail, that he had no sense of anything. That, right. That's not fair. Right. The company returned to profitability under Bruce Davis. Now, according really? to Jim, when? Uh, 1987, sometime in 87. Maybe it was at the end of 88. Probably at the beginning of 88. I'd have to check my notes. But it did have a profitable couple of quarters there. Now, according to Jim Levy, part of the way that he did this is that he wrote off the remainder of Activision's losses. He just took a big write-off, which technically Jim Levy could have done while he was still in control of the company, too. You know, a lot of that inventory stuff, uh -huh. they were spreading out the pain of that over multiple quarters. I'm not an accountant. I don't know exactly what the practices are for doing this. But, you know, those big overarching losses, you can parcel them out in a way that... You absorb them better financially. Yeah, slowly over time instead of... And Brooke David is like, we're going to nip this all now. We're going to start over and we'll just take the loss. We'll be done with this. We're not going to have to deal with this again. Yes. So clean slate. Technically, Levy might have been able to do the same thing. And then he could have said the company returned to profitability under him. But Jim Levy had a more long-term view that didn't think that that was a good idea for the company. I am not enough of an accountant to know who was right on that. I'm just saying part of the reason that the company returned to profitability was smoke and mirrors like that. Okay. But not all of it, because what they did is they got into the console market again. They were always kind of in the VCS market because they had that 2600 market because they always had that inventory that was still right. piled up. They keep had to sell. But they, they got into the NES market, which... They had not done under Levy. Levy was not interested in entering that market. Very burned by cartridges, obviously. Right. They were still absorbing losses. And so when Nintendo first came around in 1986, the company was not interested in the risk because at that point, Nintendo hadn't become a juggernaut yet. It's very possible that Levy in 1987 might have made the decision to take Activision into the console market because at that point, it was clear consoles were back. 1986... Nintendo was just starting to launch. So you're having to take it on faith that Nintendo right. is going to actually be successful. Right. And they didn't want to take that on faith after they had been so horribly scarred right, right. in the previous crash. But Bruce Davis does get them into the console market, which is very good for them. He also gets them into the Sega console market, which is something that basically nobody else did in this time period. We're talking about the Master System now. We're not talking about the Genesis. Nobody else was in the Sega market because Nintendo had those exclusivity clauses that people are generally aware of that any game you release on a Nintendo console had to remain exclusive to that console for two years. Right. Which pretty much means there's no way it would go to anywhere else. Exactly. Because it's a hit-driven business. Two years later, nobody's going to want that game anymore. Right. And, of course, the Japanese publishers, we may have talked about this before, the Japanese publishers 
are making all of their money in Japan and America's just an added bonus anyway. So the Japanese companies aren't interested in They don't care. Exactly, because Nintendo's ninety percent, ninety five percent of the market in Japan. So they're not gonna publish. But even the very few North American companies were not really publishing on Sega right away. Acclaim did get into it a little later, but Bruce Davis decided to get into everything, which was both a good and a bad thing. It was good to have ties with Sega. And if Activision had not gone bankrupt a couple years later, which we'll discuss momentarily, it would have been a really good thing because they were on the ground floor with the Sega Genesis Mm -hmm. in a way that nobody else was. They were so close to Sega in this period just because they were the only third-party publisher really giving them the time of day. Right. They were so close that Activision's console people actually were advising Sega on how to enter the market with the Sega Genesis when the Sega Genesis was getting ready to launch in 1989. And they even translated the dev kits for the Sega Genesis, the instructions for the dev kits into English. Oh, really? Because at this point, Sega hadn't gotten their American branch up and running all the way yet. So they didn't have a strong North American presence. So they were leaning very heavily on Activision. And they gave Activision some contracts for some of the early games, including the game that became Joe Montana Football, another game that became a hit for Electronic Arts. (laughs) Because then Activision fell apart in the bankruptcy that we'll talk about in a bit and uh, couldn't complete the game. Right. So effectively, Bruce Davis managed to lay the groundwork to really make the company profitable, start diversifying enough in order to determine which one of these markets will allow me to continue to grow, even though he may have cut back things a little bit too much, but at least he still left enough of the plant, figuratively speaking, there so that it had the potential to grow really well. Getting on Genesis made Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts was the leading computer game publisher, but this was a very small market compared to the console market. So being the leading computer game publisher didn't necessarily make you the most impressive company in the world. You were the big fish in a relatively small pond. Mm -hmm. Getting on Genesis early, which Electronic Arts did, made Electronic Arts into Electronic Arts. Yeah, Activision if they hadn't gone bankrupt, which was due to other factors that we'll discuss momentarily, Activision could have gotten in on Genesis on the ground floor in the same way Electronic Arts did. And might have potentially even beaten out of Electronic Arts. Possibly. They were ready. They were there. And Bruce Davis is the reason that they were there, because Bruce Davis thought it was very important to get Activision on all the consoles. And not just ride the Nintendo rocket, even though Nintendo was the one in ascendance at that time. He he recognized the importance of getting on on those other consoles. So that could have created an Activision powerhouse if events had gone a little differently. All right. What are those events? The bankruptcy. (laughs) I think we teased them enough. (laughs) All right. So Activision briefly returns to profitability. Then a couple of things happen. The big thing and the thing they get criticized for the most is that they went into home productivity software. Uh They diversified out of games into other areas. They created a personal organizer kind of program. They created a presentation software program for the HyperCard, which was a Macintosh Uh add-on that was very much in the vein of what PowerPoint later became. 
They're trying to do business productivity software. Exactly. But they were focused more on the small business or home user rather than on the corporate user for the most part. Okay. Is what they were focused on. They bought a couple of companies. They bought a company called Zsoft, which had some expertise in this field. They created some new divisions of the company to focus on this new kind of software. And they changed the name of the company to Mediagenic. That's why we're discussing the history of Mediagenic. This is where Mediagenic finally comes in. So Because Activision was strongly identified with games. Mm-hmm. And so Bruce Davis felt that they needed a different name to convey that they were moving beyond games. If you want a modern example of this, Think of Google and Alphabet. You have Google, who everyone has their own preconceptions about them as the search company, but they've been diversifying a lot. There's a lot of things they diversified into, and a lot of those things are very profitable. And so in order to better communicate that as far as shareholders and the general public goes, they created a super company and changed the name above that and made Google a subsidiary of it called Alphabet. Exactly. And that's what Bruce Davis did, because Activision didn't go away. The Activision brand continued. Mm-hmm. It was the brand for the games on both consoles and home computers. It became the subsidiary to MediaGenic. Exactly. So it was still there. So they had this new name and they get a lot of flack. Again, from historians like, what is Bruce Davis doing moving this company into productivity and business software? Well, Let's look at the history a little bit. Now, the move didn't end up going well, and we'll discuss that. But Broderbund Mm -hmm. started out as a game company, pure game company. Then they did a word processor, Bank Street Writer, which was popular for a few years. Then in 1984, they did Print Shop, which was popular for many, 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 many years. Mm -hmm. By the late 80s, Broderbund was more a productivity company than a game company, and it was very successful for them. Electronic Arts started out as a pure game company, but they started doing other things. They tried to do a personal organizer suite in 1984. It didn't go well, but they tried to do it. They almost made a deal to do some business software in the mid-80s with a fellow named Bobby Kotick that'll come back up here very soon, I think. That deal didn't end up happening, but they were looking into doing it. And then they did D-Paint. Deluxe Paint, which became the de facto graphics program in use on computers in the late 80s and early 90s. It was the Photoshop of its day. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was focused on pixel art, whereas Photoshop is focused on manipulating photos. But in terms of its reach as a graphics program, it was the Photoshop of its day. Right. And it was very successful for them. People single out Activision because Activision failed. Other game companies were doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. So there's no reason to vilify them unjustly just because they weren't successful at it. Right. Everyone was doing that. He saw that this is the way everyone's going. They're diversifying like this. We should get on this and get doing Right. This. So you can blame them for the ways it didn't work. But it's not fair to blame them for getting into that field in the first place. And the other thing that people don't realize is that they actually did a few products. Again, this started under Levy. People criticize Davis for this market shift. They released their first business products under Levy. Mm-hmm. The, the first ones did not do well at all. I think they came from some French company, if I remember correctly, and they just, they didn't do well. 
but it's it didn't start under Davis. It actually it started, started under, under the previous CEO. Now Davis expanded it. Davis got them far more in that direction. But again, it's a misconception. People are like, what's Davis thinking? What's Davis thinking? Well, A, Davis is thinking the exact same thing his predecessor did at the exact same company. And B, Davis is thinking the exact same thing that other computer game companies like Broderbund and Electronic Arts are also thinking. Yeah. So why are we singling him out for making that decision? Makes sense. Now, the problem with what they did is they decided this was both savvy and a mistake. They decided that the mainstream market was already well served. They decided there wasn't anything they could put on PC or Macintosh that wasn't already being done by another company. Mm -hmm. So they chose to target emerging new platforms. The Apple II GS, which mm -hmm. was the final evolution of the Apple II product line, and HyperCard, which was an extension. It was an uh, plug-in accessory for the Macintosh. Right. So it, it went into Macintosh, but not every Macintosh had HyperCard. If you already had, if you bought the add-on, you'd have that capability. Exactly. It's an expansion capability. So I think it was very smart of him to realize that they weren't going to be able to do anything on PC. Because they weren't going to be able to do anything on PC. Market saturated. The problem is they assumed that those smaller niche markets that they decided to target were going to become bigger markets and they didn't. And so they misread the market. And Bruce yeah. Davis should absolutely take his share of the blame for misreading the market. That's, it was a mistake. Okay. Apple II GS never went anywhere. HyperCard never went anywhere. So their productivity software never went anywhere. If the platform right. doesn't sell, software doesn't sell. All right. And so the, because the productivity software didn't fail, eventually... That's really what tanked. That's part of it. That's that's one of the factors. Another factor is it was a good thing that he that he got the company into Sega products. That was very smart. Mm -hmm. But he also kept them in Atari products. Oh. 2600, 7800. And in 1990, the Atari market fell off a cliff. Not because of a crash or anything. It's just the technology was ancient by this point. Right. And Nintendo had the 8-bit market sewed up, and now Genesis is coming along with the 16-bit fancy stuff, even though it's not well-established in the market yet. Atari just falls off a cliff. Right, so Atari is not relevant. They kept, they stayed in the Atari market too long. There's just no other way to put it. It's good that he targeted all of the console markets, but they didn't do a good job of reading which console markets would end up being long-term successful, and so they... They covered their bets. By like, being diversified, but they stayed connected. But, but yeah, but they weren't reading well. They they should have realized at that point that it was time to get out of the Atari market because nobody else was investing, of, of consequence, was investing in the Atari market at all at that point. Right. So that hurt them too. The productivity software failure was the bigger blow, but blow's a blow. We got two blows. Neither of those things are what killed the company, though. What absolutely killed the company and made it untenable as an ongoing concern and made it had to go bankrupt yeah brought it to the edge of bankruptcy was losing the appeal of a patent lawsuit with phillips really so the very first home video game console magnavox odyssey mm -hmm. was created by an individual named ralph Baer at a defense contractor called sanders associates they then licensed it to magnavox mm-hmm 1974, Magnavox is purchased by Philips, the Dutch electronics conglomerate. 
So by this time period, we're talking about Philips rather than Magnavox because they're the parent company. Right. When Ralph Baer created that system, he took out a couple of patents. Mm -hmm. One of those patents was basically for a device in which you are an apparatus that is sending a video signal to a television. Mm -hmm. In other words, telling a CRT to generate a raster image on a television screen. Right. An apparatus that sends a video signal to a television and which then has generates objects in that rasterized image that collide with each other. Mm -hmm. And then one of them goes off on a different vector. So basically we're talking about like your Pong type gameplay in its most basic form. It doesn't have to be a Pong game. Or but breakout. In, in, right, or breakout. In the most basic form, we're talking about a Pong or breakout type game where you have a ball that collides with a paddle and then shoots off in a new direction. That's pretty much most of the games of that era. Exactly. And a lot of people get confused about this. A lot of people assume that the series of patent suits that followed is because Ralph Baer patented the concept of a video table tennis game mm -hmm. because the Odyssey had a table tennis game. And in fact, the idea for Pong did come from viewing that Odyssey table tennis game. Right. And so people assume that the patent was on doing a table tennis game that the reason they sued everybody and won a bunch of lawsuits is because people copied table tennis. That That is not true. There was not a patent on table tennis. The yeah. patent was on two objects colliding and one of those objects moving on a different vector and the technology behind it. Not the idea of having two objects collide. I mean, that, that's an that. idea that we know about collision. But having technology that allows that to happen on a television through a video signal. That is what was patented. Still sounds pretty broad. It was, but it was upheld in every single case. They sued dozens of companies between 1974 and the early 1990s. Really? And they won every single time. And most of those cases went to court. Very few companies settled with them. Everybody that came along thought that this time they would convince the judge that no, really, this patent is very broad and there's prior examples of similar things and there's no way that they will uphold this patent and every single time the patent was upheld oh wow activision was one of these companies that decided to fight it uh-huh and they lost okay but then activision went one step further than everybody else they decided to appeal the decision ah. and, and bruce davis was one of the people who appealed that decision well you see he wasn't this all happened in the earlier days of the company, the suit happened in 1982. Oh. This is well before, and the decision to appeal was made, like, in 1985 or something like that. I don't remember exactly when, but it was before he was the CEO of the company. So he inherited this lawsuit that was already under appeal. He didn't make the decision to... No, by this time it had already been going on, and at this point you kind of have to see it through to the end because you've already spent this much on defending the suit that you have to hope that you win in the end so recoup some of those legal costs. Right. So it's kind of, he's already passed the point of no return. So he inherits the suit. And then finally in 1990, they lose the appeal. Yeah. And they are now on the hook for $10 million to Phillips. Oh, goodness. And this is a company that has only recently come out of debt and is looking like it's going to go back into the red again. May have already gone back into the red again a little bit, I think. Uh-huh. 
they don't have cash on hand anymore. They've been burning through their cash. They don't have, certainly don't have $10 million. Exactly. So in this situation, what normally happens is the company that wins will be like, okay, give us some cash. Give us what cash you can give us. And then we will take equity in your company. We will buy stock in your company. Mm -hmm. And that's how we will settle. We will buy you know, we'll settle, and these are not the exact terms of this deal, but let's just say we'll take $2 million in cash and $8 million in stock. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll take equity in the company, and we'll call it even, and hope that that stock appreciates in value over time and that they actually end up with a better deal. That's the gamble. Look at all the stock could also tank, and then you end up with a worse deal. Right. Phillips refused to take equity. Absolutely refused. And Bruce Davis is pretty sure that the reason for this is that at that time, they were starting to go after Nintendo. Oh. Big kid on the block. Not only was Nintendo a very wealthy, very successful company, but no no company in the last decade had been as successful at using the legal system to its advantage as Nintendo had. Nintendo was very savvy in court. Mm -hmm. So having Philips go after Nintendo, they wanted to have some... They, according to what Bruce Davis believes, wanted to make an example out of Activision. Really? They wanted to, well, Mediagenic at this point. Mediagenic. Make an example out of Mediagenic. They wanted to grind them into the dirt to stop other companies like Nintendo from fighting them so hard. Right. Because if Nintendo were to fight them, Nintendo had a lot more cash to draw upon so they could appeal and appeal and appeal. And for all I know, the fight could still be going on today. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> could turn into that epic Intel AMD suit that literally went on for decades. But this caused them to make an example of Activision, of Mediagenic. And so they refused to take equity. Bruce Davis begged them to take equity in the company. Mm -hmm. And they would not do it. Wow. So this, this made it completely untenable. They could not pay off their their settlement to Phillips and continue as a going concern. And they They're really bankrupt. essentially Bruce Davis resisted entering bankruptcy. He did not want to enter bankruptcy. According to what he told me, he did not want to face the consequences of having to lay off everybody. Mm -hmm. He wanted to try to save people's jobs. He was close with the Nintendo people. He says that Howard Lincoln who is the senior VP at Nintendo of America, said you absolutely have to take the company to bankruptcy. It's it's the only way to save the company. And Bruce Davis did not want to do that. He kept mm -hmm. looking for other avenues. And he finally found that other avenue in Bobby Kotick, mm -hmm. who was interested in buying the company and had the backing of Steve Wynn, the casino mogul, very important casino mogul, one of the real founders of modern Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, built you know, the kind of era of the huge luxury resort hotels. He was kind of the founder of that. The sort of thing that you typically think of whenever you look at the Las Vegas Strip. Right. I mean, you know, he didn't found Las Vegas. He didn't have the idea for Las Vegas. That was, you know, the mob. <laughs> but mm. then when the mob was chased out, he was one of the people that came in and came up with this idea of the mega resort hotel. Right. So he had a lot of money. And Bobby Kotick managed to befriend him and so steve Wynn became kind of his mentor and kind of his patron and helped him out in his various entrepreneurial activities okay and uh bobby kotick had done some computer software stuff while he was in college he had partnered with a fellow named howard marks to try to create an operating system a gui uh back before the macintosh made them big that didn't work out so then he moved from that into trying to do software with a company he had called the disc company he had a deal with 
electronic arts to create a word processor that didn't quite pan out. He'd done a couple of little software things like that. Then he actually took a little detour into the licensing business, became the head of the company that did licensing for Nintendo products, putting stuff on lunchboxes and bedsheets and what have you. But what he really wanted to do was get closer to the center of the action and get in control of a company. So he had tried buying Commodore, and when that didn't work out, he turned his eye on Activision, on Mediagenic. They needed $10 million. Yeah, well, yeah, and he didn't buy it for, for $10 million. He bought it for less, but he ended up purchasing Mediagenic. And he did then take them through a bankruptcy and laid everybody off, the exact thing that Bruce Davis says he wanted to avoid, but right. realistically, I guess that was the only option. He did manage to get Phillips off of his back, though, don't know exactly how Bruce Davis believes that Steve Wynn mm-hmm. had friends on the board at Phillips. You know, okay. Steve Wynn being this very influential, rich power broker guy. Bruce Davis believes that Steve Wynn had friends on the, the Phillips board and that he was able to massage things right. and smooth things over. Can't say for certain whether that's true or not. Bruce Davis is an outsider looking in when it comes to this kind of thing. But that's right. that's what he thinks happened. I do know because of a a newspaper article profile on Bobby Kotick that at first Phillips was not going to take equity from him either. Uh They had a meeting and he said, you've got to take equity. And they said, nope. And according to Bobby Kotick in this article, he basically said, well, then good luck to y'all. And, you know, metaphorically handed them the keys to the building and walked out of the the (laughs) company and walked out of the boardroom. It's like, well, fine. Company's screwed. Have fun with it. <laughs> and uh, he says that, you know, they called him back. He basically called their bluff and they called him back and finally said, OK, fine, we'll take some equity in the company. Hmm. So and did they do that because they were more friendly disposed to him because Steve Wynn had friends on the board? Very well could be that that could right. have been the difference maker. It's just I can't confirm that. That's only something Steve Wynn and Bobby Kotick would know. So, so we need to hunt them down and interview them. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Kotick is still at Activision. He's been the CEO ever since. A, he's a very busy man. And B, I try to make it a policy never to interview anyone that's still at the company that I'm interested in, especially a CEO of a publicly traded company. He cannot he can't say anything candid. candid that might affect Activision stock price. Right. So... So I, I don't think there's a point in interviewing Bobby Kotick at this juncture. Someday somebody needs to do it, and maybe I will do it, but not not while he's not CEO. while he's still there. <laughs> I don't think that's the the appropriate time to do it. But yes, he would be the guy to ask about that. So Bobby Kotick took over the company, renamed it Activision, cut all but about eight staff, moved them to Los Angeles because he believed that there would be a synergy. And Davis left was candidating that. Oh yeah, Davis left the company. Bobby Kotick replaced him as CEO. He stayed on the board for a very small period longer, but then you know, he left the board too. Uh, Kotick moved the company to Los Angeles because he believed there was going to be a synergy between Hollywood and video games, a synergy that has very much come to pass. It was very forward thinking to, to believe that in 1991. Right. And he cut the company to about eight people, renamed it Activision, got rid of the mediogenic thing. Went back to focusing on games. He felt that the Activision back catalog and the Infocom back catalog, which of course was owned by Activision, had a lot of value in it. And he planned to mine that catalog to bring the company back to profitability. And he did. It's a whole other story. But slowly over time, he built the company up. And now they are by far the largest third party developer or publisher, excuse me, by far the largest third party publisher 
in the video game business, and Bobby Kotick's been in charge that entire time. So one of the most, if not the most successful and brilliant businessmen in the history of video games. There are a lot of gamers that feel that he is too much of a businessman, too, that they run franchises into the ground, that they release, you know, versions of Call of Duty and Guitar Hero and Tony Hawk, et cetera, et cetera, every year until the franchise is bland and stale and ruined and destroyed. Right. And so he's he's not popular in that sense. It's kind of this idea, again, of video games as commodities versus video games as art. Right. And it just and a lot of problem. gamers think he goes too far to the commodity side. The company's successful. So, I mean, whether the world's a better place to have a successful company that isn't artistic, or I don't know. Or a better to have an artistic company that's not successful yeah, and burned out. I, I don't know. There. that That's going to that's gonna have a wide array of opinions. Some people are going to think one way. Some are going to think the other way. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. But fact of the matter is, Bobby Kotick managed to do what neither Jim Levy, Mr. Creative, or Bruce Davis, Mr. Commodity, could do. And or that, Mr. Business. <laughs> yes. And that is turn Activision into a highly successful, highly profitable company. So that's really what Mediagenics is. It's sort of showing the whole, you have Activision before Mediagenics, where you see how a company is when you have creative completely in control. Mm -hmm. You see Mediagenics as a company that is what it's like when it's completely under a business control. And arguably, if it wasn't for the lawsuit failing and them having to ha be tailed out it'd be interesting to see whether or not that company would be able to continue on under davis's leadership it's possible it could have the, the one thing i will say about bruce davis that i think would bode poorly for its future success mm -hmm. is he was not good at picking platforms okay i mean yes i think they would have done well on genesis probably but they stuck with atari too long so they would have probably stuck with Genesis too long after... Or stuck with NES for too long or whatever. And he recognized that they couldn't make a dent in the PC market with productivity software, but then he took them into GS and HyperCard, which just didn't grow. So he was not a good picker of platforms. He understood certain things. He understood that you had to get on new platforms early in order to have a chance of success, massive success on those platforms. Mm -hmm. That's a plus. He understood the franchise potential of some of E of some of Mediagenics properties. Shanghai, for instance, the very first Shanghai game was a massive, massive, massive success. Bruce Davis was the one that insisted that they make a sequel. Mm -hmm. And after they made one sequel, they made many more, and it became a successful franchise for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So he understood the franchise potential of some of their stuff. He understood the need to get onto platforms early in order to be successful. And he understood that sometimes it's more important to make sure you're making money than making art in the business world. A sad fact of life. If you're a right. big publicly traded company, you have to make money. You have shareholders, you're accountable. I to. think indie games are a fantastic thing, and I love the diversity of indie games out there today. I'm not trying to paint a picture where everybody should just do a commodities approach i'm just saying right. a publicly traded company has certain responsibilities that need to be met and he understood that a little better than jim levy on the other on the other hand he was a poor platform picker and he probably alienated creative more than he should have and so those were the negatives so and you did say that it wasn't he he did start to have a few bad quarters even though he did have some good quarters exactly he returned before. them to profitability but then because the platforms didn't develop you know, the 2GS, the HyperCard, 
you know, and then the Atari market started falling apart. Bad. So who knows? It possible he could have sort of maybe waited a little bit longer and probably would have died off sort of with uh, Sega. It, it's possible. It could have ended up being successful on Genesis and then pulled in a claim, which is a claim held on to the cartridge market too long and then got reamed for it. So mm. I think the company was definitely more successful under Bobby Kotick because Bobby Kotick... Well, he's still there now. He's still there. He's and, an incredibly and, and successful businessman. Extremely successful company. You, they became Activision Blizzard, and and I don't, I don't think, I don't think Bruce Davis did a lot for Activision's image. All the criticism of him is not necessarily fair, but the fact that he comes in for so much criticism is partially because people don't like what the Activision brand became during those years. Mm-hmm. And feel it runs counter to what Activision used to be and became again. Mm-hmm. So that's that's bad. I mean, whether Bruce Davis is his fault for everything that went on during that period or not, the fact that the brand was damaged in that period is bad. Is bad because you don't want your brand to be damaged. Even if he was making some of the right decisions, they didn't convince the public right. that they were making the right decisions. Right. They were making so things that bruce davis deserves to come in for some criticism he does not deserve to come in for all of the criticism he comes in for he's painted as this really bad villain and he was just he was a lawyer and a young ceo he was in his 30s i think which is young for ceo oh yeah i mean we're, was, we're both in our 30s and i can't really <laughs> imagine either of us being in charge of a company he was a lawyer and a young ceo that may have been in a little over his head but was doing the best that he could he had some good ideas. He had some bad ideas. It ultimately didn't work out, but it's not fair to just call him one of the great villains of video game history. That is completely unjustified. And I hope that my work can rehabilitate his image a bit. Not not completely excuse him, not completely be like, oh my God, wasn't Bruce Davis amazing? Just make people understand that there's a lot more bad. going on. He's not as bad as people would have originally thought i mean the way he's been painted is you lay a lot more at his feet than really he had justified to lay by his feet it's not to say that he didn't make bad decisions it's not to say that he didn't make mistakes and things that were bad for the company and for the industry but it's certainly no worse than a lot of companies have done and a lot of ceos have done exactly there are very few ceos that haven't had peaks and valleys in their own careers they have great moves and, and poor moves jim levy was brilliant in the way he started Activision. It lost some steam later in his career. Trip Hawkins was brilliant in the way that he started Electronic Arts. But then when he went on to found the 3DO company, he was not nearly as successful there. Nolan Bushnell had a great idea with Atari, couldn't necessarily sustain it. So there are plenty of people that have gone through peaks and valleys. And Bruce Davis doesn't have any accomplishments to rank him with a Jim Levy or a Nolan Bushnell or a Trip Hawkins. I'm not comparing him to those individuals. I'm just saying we need to understand that all of these individuals were humans that were making the best decisions they felt they could under the circumstances. Some made better decisions than others. Some, some were luckier success. than others. Some were luckier than others. And it's it's just not fair to completely demonize. But that's that's probably all that needs to be said on that uh, specific subject. But that's that's basically the gist of what happened to Mediagenic. It was it was a company that had some promise and had some history that just couldn't quite pull it all together in those very difficult years in the late 80s. And if it hadn't been for a lawsuit, it 
probably might have survived a bit longer. Right, but then maybe Bobby Kotick never comes in, and then we don't get the Activision of today, and whether some people don't like the way they've run some of their franchises into the ground, uh, the fact of the matter is, we have Tony Hawk and Call of Duty and any number of other games that people really loved because Bobby Kotick built Activision into what it was. So It's really interesting just to think of how just one little change was all it would be to really completely change how the industry eventually became if Bobby Kotick ended up buying Commodore. Imagine if we would be talking about Commodore whatever now. Exactly. Commodore Blizzard, for all I know. Exactly, because Bobby Kotick is a business genius. If anyone could have turned Commodore around, he probably could have. And if he had bought the company and got Irving Gould out as the chairman, who was really the main problem with Commodore in those years, it, Commodore could have been a completely different company today, absolutely. And it's just really fascinating that the it's just one small little thing. It's all that really hinges about really big changes that could have happened in the history of the industry. A butterfly flaps its wings, and halfway around the world, there's a hurricane. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else you want to go over as far as Mediagenics? I think that pretty thoroughly covers it. All right. Where do we want to go next time? Well, at this point, let's combine, essentially, a couple of things that we've done recently. In our previous episode of this one, we talked about Japanese arcades, and in this episode, we talked a little bit about American computer games, and... One kind of interesting intersection of American computer games in Japan is the genesis of the Japanese role-playing game, what's generally called JRPG, because basically what happened is you had the early computer RPGs in America reaching Japan, going through that process that Japan is so good at, which is taking something that they like from another culture and completely reinventing it to be something particular to their culture where you can still recognize the influences right. but now it's become Japanese and how they, they Japanify it. They Japanify it and that's kind of how you got to Dragon Quest and from Dragon Quest you get the entirety of RPGs so I think that that would be an interesting topic uh, to examine next time. Sounds great. And we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Mm-hmm.